0: I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening, I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. I'm curious how many here got here through Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF. you're in its heart. I've had the honor of being one of the founding directors of EFF back when I was going through dramatic changes every six months or so. seems to have settled down to major public service by now. And so we are happy to be co-sponsoring this between the Long Now Foundation and EFF to bring Cory Doctorow here tonight. Um, you may have cards that are both... Replacing my introduction to Corey, and also uh, there's space on the back for your questions, which you may want to write during the event, and send them out to people going up and down the aisles. They will come down here to Alexander Rose, who will get the most embarrassing ones, pass them to me, and I will bring them up on the stage and hit Corey Doctorow with them. You'll notice there's not much room for questions, so short and legible in the dark helps a lot. Talking about Cory, I'm basically a fanboy. Uh, I've you know, been reading For the Win and Makers and uh, Little Brother, and because of those, really got in touch with Dr. O. Uh, now, he is a EFF fellow, which means he knows their secrets. Uh, and he is engaged. Uh, one of the interesting things about a person writing contemporary science fiction, which he does, Is not only are you getting journalistic insight into things that are just showing the tips of their ears. So, Makers came out in 2009 and basically anticipated the entire maker movement that's now going on. And goes beyond that to say, what happens if the makers really win? You get the victory condition, and everybody can make. What happens then? Because things just keep rolling. And then a good science fiction writer and a a good political analyst will do that kind of thinking and writing and take you there. And so as a consequence, usually when you know a writer's political agenda, they get pretty predictable. And if you've read one book, you don't need to read another because they're all the same story. This is not the case with Cory Doctorow. Uh, He takes you to a place with his journalistic depth. There is a political perspective that he plays out and he takes you there. It's a very interesting way to do politics. But he's not exactly telling stories tonight. He's going dead at it tonight. Cory Doctorow.
1: Thanks, folks. So. Um This talk's a bit different than most of the talks that I've given. Uh, I'm a career activist, and so that means that, generally speaking, the end of my talks are supposed to uh, end with a call to action. So there's a thing when you're a career activist, every talk has to end with a call to action, and lucky for me, I've got an easy one. Every talk ends with, uh, you should join EFF, you should support EFF, you should volunteer for EFF. You should still do that, but this talk doesn't end with a call to action, uh, although those are all good things to do because it's it's a slightly different kind of talk, Uh, It's a talk where I don't really know how to solve the problem. It's a talk about a problem that I don't know yet how to solve. Um, In the talk, I will um, propose a technology, and I want to make it clear that the technology I'm proposing is a Gedanken experiment, it's a thought experiment, not a serious proposal. Uh, Not something that I think we should do, but something to give you the idea of what I think we should do. So with those two caveats out of the way, I want to talk to you tonight about the coming civil war over general purpose computing. So I gave this talk late in uh, 2011 at uh, 28C3, the Chaos Communications Congress in Berlin, called The Coming War on General Purpose Computing. And in a nutshell, the hypothesis of this talk was this. Uh, Computers and the Internet are everywhere. The world is increasingly made of them. We used to have separate categories of devices. We had VCRs, we had phones, we had cars, we had washing machines. And now these are all just computers with different boxes. Um, Cars are... Uh, computers we put our bodies into 747s, our flying Solaris boxes with a bunch of Scada controllers, um, hearing aids, pacemakers, other computers, other prostheses. These are just computers we put in our body. This means that all of the socio-political problems that crop up in the future are going to have a computer in the middle of them, and that means that every time a problem crops up from now on, you're going to have a regulator saying what you know the entertainment industry has been saying for a while now. Make me a computer that can run every program we can compile except for this one program that pisses me off. And the problem is that um, we don't know how to make the general-purpose computer, the Turing-complete computer that's Turing-complete minus one, the computer that runs every program except for the program that scares someone. We don't know how to make a computer that uh, will direct a self-driving car to do all the programs we, comp- we can compile except for the drag racing program or the 3D printer to run all the programs we can compile except for the one that lets us print out an AR-15 or the um, thing that allows us, to, uh, allows us to direct our bioscale assemblers to print out restricted compounds. So um, we don't know how to make computers that can run all the programs we can compile except for the one that pisses off a regulator or disrupts a business model or abets a criminal. The closest approximation we have for that device is a computer with spyware on it, a computer that runs every program but has another program lurking on it in in secret that watches everything you do to stop you from doing something that upsets someone, a computer that watches everything you do, and then if you do the wrong thing, it intercedes and says, "Um, I can't let you do that, Dave. (laughs) A computer that runs secret programs designed to be hidden from the owner of the device which the owner can't override or kill, in other words, a computer running DRM. Now these computers are a bad idea for at least two significant reasons. The first is, of course, that they won't solve problems. Uh, Breaking DRM is not hard for bad guys. The copyright war's lesson is that DRM is always broken with near immediacy because DRM can only work if the I can't let you do that Dave program remains secret. Um, once the most sophisticated attackers in the world liberate that secret, it becomes available to everyone else in the world. Now DRM, the second reason is that DRM has inherently weak security and makes all security overall weaker. You can't be secure unless you can be certain about what software is running on your computer. Um, Designing the I-can't-let-you-do-that-Dave facility into a computer creates this security vulnerability. Anyone who hijacks the facility can do things to your computer that it's designed not to let you find out about, much less override. And once governments solve problems with DRM, there's this perverse incentive to make it illegal to tell people things that might let them undermine DRM, things like this is how the DRM works. Or, here's a flaw in the DRM that would let an attacker secretly watch you through your webcam or listen through your microphone. Now, I've had lots of feedback since giving this talk last year from uh, various distinguished computer scientists, technologists, civil libertarians, and security researchers, and I believe that within those fields, there is a broad consensus that owners of computers, all other things being equal, should be able to control what runs on their computers, that the world is a better place when owners are in charge of what's going on in their computers. Now let's examine for a moment what it would mean to um, be an owner of a computer who's in charge of your computer. Now most computers today are fitted with these things, trusted platform modules or TPMs. Now this is a secure coprocessor mounted on the motherboard of your computer. The specifications of TPMs are published and there's this industry body that certifies compliance with the specifications. To the extent that the specification is a good one and the industry body is diligent in upholding it and and enforcing its logo program, it's possible to be reasonably certain that you've got a real functional TPM in your computer and it faithfully implements the specification. But the TPMs are secure in that they contain some secrets. They contain some cryptographic keys, among other things. But they're also secure in that they're designed to be tamper evident. Uh, If you try to extract the keys from a TPM or change the TPM out or gimmick the TPM in some way, it's supposed to be obvious to the user that something's been done to her computer, at least if you're, you know, an average person and not like a sophisticated, you know, spy agency. So one of the TPM threat models is that crooks or governments or police forces or some other adversary might try to compromise your computer. So the tamper evidence lets you know if someone's done something to your computer so that the TPM is no longer doing its job. Another TPM model is that remotely, someone might infect your computer with malicious software, and once your computer gets infected with malicious software, you're in great trouble. All of the sensors that are attached to your computer, the mic, the camera, the accelerometer, the fingerprint reader, the GPS, and so on, might be switched on without your knowledge, and then that data can be cached and uh, sent to a bad guy or both. Um, all the data on your computer, the sensitive files, your stored passwords and web history, can be sent to a bad guy, can be erased, or can be changed. All the keystrokes in your computer, including your password, can be logged, and all the peripherals attached to your computer can be covertly operated, whether that's a printer, a, a scanner, a 3D printer, a scatter controller, a car, the avionics system, so on and so forth, or subtly altered and additional peripherals that may soon be connected to the computer that's infected uh, include your optic nerve, your cochlea, the stumps of your legs, and so on. So you get the idea that there's a lot at stake here in knowing what's going on in your computer and controlling what's going on in your computer. Now, when your computer boots up, the TPM can ask its bootloader, the thing that boots up the operating system, for a signed hash of itself and verify that the signature from the hash comes from someone that the TPM trusts. Now once you trust the bootloader to faithfully perform its duties, you can ask it to check the operating system and then check the, ask the operating system to check the programs you run and so on, all the way up to whatever it is you're interacting with. So that allows you to be, to some extent, or for some, for some values of sure, sure that you know what's running on your computer, and that any programs running in secret are running in secret because they've managed to do so by, sub, by, by bootstrapping a flaw in the code and not by inserting something malicious into the code. It's a subtle difference, but an important one. They're doing so bec- not because your computer was designed to let them hide themselves from you, but because they found a flaw in your computer's design. Now, this always reminds me of, of this guy, uh, Rene Descartes, who, who starts off by saying, um, how can I know about the world? I don't know if my reason is true. I don't know if my senses faithfully report to me. And he does some mental gymnastics, and he says, all right, I've figured it out. I know now that um, I can trust my senses, I've done some logic work, I trust my senses and I trust, and, and from there, from that nub of trust, that I trust my senses and my reason, I can then work out a whole scaffolding uh, from wh- that, I can, that I can hang off of that nub of trust, and on that scaffolding I can stand as I surveil the world and try to make sense of it. Having the tiny nub of stable certainty is important, it's, from wh- it's the thing on which you can construct the stable edifice. Now, a TPM can be a nub of stable certainty. If it's there, it might reliably inform you about the code running on your computer. Now, you may find it a bit weird to hear someone like me talking warmly about TPMs. After all, these are the technologies that make it possible to lock phones and tablets and consoles and even some PCs so that they can't run the software that their owners want to run on them. And when we talk about jailbreaking, we usually mean subverting a TPM. Why on earth would I ever want a TPM in any computer that I owned? Well, the devil's in the details, as with everything important. Imagine for a moment two different ways of thinking about TPMs. The first one, we can call it lockdown. And in the lockdown world, uh, your TPM comes with a set of signing keys that it trusts. And unless your bootloader is signed by the parties trusted by your TPM, you can't run it. And since the bootloader determines what operating systems you can run and the operating systems determine what software you can run, your computer is not under your control. But now think for a moment about certainty. You tell your TPM which keys you trust. I trust EFF, I trust WikiLeaks, and I trust Ubuntu, and it tells you whether or not the bootloaders that it can find on your hard drive have been signed by those parties or, you know, or by you. Um, and it can faithfully report the signatures of any other bootloaders it finds and it lets you make up your own damn mind about who you trust. You trust yourself, you trust other people, you trust no one. Approximately speaking, you can think of these two scenarios as corresponding to the way that iOS and Android work. iOS only lets you run the, uh, the, the operating systems that Apple trusts and then the software that's built on top of them, whereas Android lets you run software that, that you trust. You can tick the little box that says, let me run someone else's software. But there's a critical difference between what Android does and what I'm talking about tonight because Android lacks the facility to do that little bit of crypto work to let you know whether the software that you think you're running is the software that you're running. It's freedom, but it's not certainty. In a world where the computers that we're talking about can see and hear you, where we insert our bodies into them and we insert them into our bodies, knowing what you are doing, having certainty, is a big deal. Which is why I'm coming around to the idea of a TPM, assuming it's implemented in the certainty mode and not in the lockdown mode. Now, if that's not immediately clear, think of it this way. The war on general purpose computing is what you get when the control freaks in government and industry demand the ability to remotely control your computer. The defenders against that attack, people like me, are also control freaks, but we happen to believe that device owners should have control over their computers. Now both sides want control, but we differ on which side gets control, who should be in control. Control starts with knowledge. If you want to be sure that songs can only be moved onto an iPod and not off of an iPod, the iPod needs to know that the instructions being given to it uh, by uh, given to it by a PC to which it's tethered are emanating from the actual Apple-approved version of iTunes and not from something that impersonates iTunes in order to get it to do things that uh, gore Apple's ox. Um, now, if you want to be if I if you want to be sure that the PVR I have hooked up to my TV won't record the watch once video on demand programs, um, you need to be sure that the tuner that's receiving it will honor that flag and not output to any devices that it doesn't trust. Um, and if I want to be sure that you aren't watching me through my webcam covertly, I need to know that the drivers are there and that they're, that they're faithfully honoring the convention that when the green light comes on, the camera's on, and when the camera's on, the green light is on. Um, and if I want to be sure that you can't, aren't capturing my passwords, uh, as I type them into my keyboard, I need to know that the OS isn't lying to me when it says there aren't any software keyloggers on the system. Whether you want to be free or whether you want to enslave, you need to have knowledge and control over the system. So that's the coming war on general purpose computing. That's the talk I gave in Berlin. Now I want to investigate what happens in the event that we win the war on general purpose computing. That's the prospect I call the coming civil war over general purpose computers. So I'll ask you now to stipulate this thought experiment that we win a victory on the freedom side. And um, we have computers now that faithfully let owners know what's running on them and let owners choose what's running on them. Uh, The computer's we, we get to control what's running on them because there's something on it that faithfully reports what's going on in them. So there are two arguments I can make for why that would be a good thing. And the first one is a human rights argument. Um, if your world is made of computers, then designing computers to override the owner's wishes and decisions has significant human rights deci- uh, implications. Today, we're worried that the Iranian government might ban from import any computer except for those that run operating systems that, are, uh, that will allow them to spy on users. But tomorrow, imagine if the government that I live under, the British government, says that from now on when the NHS gives you a cochlear implant, it doesn't allow you to hear extremist speech, or it takes any extremist speech that you hear and reports it back to the police, or both. And the second reason for doing this is the property rights reason. Uh, The doctrine of first first sale is a very important piece of consumer law. It says that once you buy something, you own something. It belongs to you, and you have the freedom to do anything you want, even if it pisses off the vendor. Now, digital rights uh, management opponents like me like saying things like, if you bought it, you own it. Um, Property rights are a very, very powerful argument to have on your side, especially in America, where there's uh, strong property rights enforcement is often seen as the foundation of social remedies. And this goes double for this neighborhood, for Silicon Valley. You can't swing a cat for hitting someone who believes that uh, the major or only legitimate function of governments is to enforce property rights and the contracts around them. Which is to say that if you want to win a nerd fight, property rights are a powerful weapon to have on your side. And not just nerd fights. If you go to D.C., it's a great place to have. It's a great thing to have on your side too. And this is why people involved in in the copyright fight are so touchy about the term intellectual property, which was brought in very cynically in the mid-'70s to replace the term of art of the day, which was the intellectual monopoly or the creator's monopoly. Um, Creator's monopoly is a hard thing to argue for. Going to a regulator or a lawmaker and saying my monopoly isn't being forced vigorously enough is a lot less palatable than my property rights are being trampled upon. Um, So this um, uh, this is where the civil rights... Uh, part comes in the Civil War part comes in. I beg your pardon, human rights and property rights both demand that computers not be designed for uh, remote control from governments and corporations and so on. That is owners should be allowed to specify the software they 're running to freely choose the nub of certainty from which they suspend the scaffold of their computer 's security. Now remember, security is relative you are there 's no such thing as uh, abstract security. You can only be secured from, attack, uh, from a certain attack. So I might be secured from, my atta- on my, uh, from an attack on my ability to freely use my music um, when, uh, if you can control my computing environment. But if I can control my music and you can't control my computing environment and you're the record industry, then you are less secure in your ability to charge rent every time I want to listen to music. If I get to choose the nub from which the scaffold dangles, I get control and power to secure myself against attackers. Now if the Recording Industry Association of America or the government or Monsanto get to choose that nub, then they get the control and the power to secure themselves against me. So let's all agree at the very least that owners should be able to know and control the software running on their computers. But what about users? Users of computers don't always have the same interests as owners of computers. And increasingly, we are all gonna be the users of computers we don't own because we are gonna inhabit a world made of computers. Um, Where you come down on the conflicts between users and owners, I think will end up being one of the more meaningful questions of the coming century. And there's no easy answer I know of for figuring out where to to land given any, any situation. No rule of thumb that works for everything. So let's start with a position we can call the property maximalist, right? Um, here's, here's Blackstone on property. Uh, if it's my computer, I should have the absolute right to dictate to users the terms on which they can use it. If you don't like the, the rules that I've set for my computer, go use someone else's computer. How does that work in practice? Well, we can have some combination of, of law and technology. You get a computer and out of the box... Uh, it asks you to give it a, a password, an administrative password, and then when you've given it, the administrator and all the administrator can choose whose operating systems they trust. So no one else is allowed to come and tell you what to trust, and you can tell anyone who wants to use the computer which operating systems it's going to run. Um, so you generate a, a, a random signature... Um, and that signature, or you generate a, you have a signature, that signature is used to generate a random key, and that, that belongs to you. Without that key, no one can change the list of trusted parties. And we could even make it against the law to subvert that system for the purposes of tricking people into running software they didn't, uh, choose themselves. That would make spyware extra super illegal, and it would also make sneaking DRM onto people's computers illegal. Uh, we can design this TPM so that if you tamper with it or you remove it, it becomes really obvious. Uh, you know, you give it a fragile housing so that any time you, you, you attack it it, it, it kind of breaks apart and anyone can tell that something funny's going on. Um, now, I can see lots of benefits to this, but there are unquestionably some downsides, too. So think for a minute of uh, self-driving cars. Now, there's a lot of these around already, of course, coming out of Google and elsewhere. And it's easy to understand, on the one hand, why self-driving cars would be incredibly awesome, because as a species, we are terrible drivers. Seriously, I mean, cars kill the shit out of us. (laughs) It is the number one cause of deaths for people in America aged 5 to 34. Um, Now, I've been hit by a car, and I've also cracked up a car, and I'm perfectly willing to stipulate that human beings have no business driving cars. Now, it's also easy to understand how we might be nervous about people being to able to homebrew their own firmware for self-driving cars. On the one hand, we'll want the source code for cars to be widely published so that we can all scrutinize it and make sure it's good. But on the other hand, I think there's going to be a very plausible argument to say some uh, authoritarian body gets to certify what's running on the highways. Now, we're back to the, now we get back to this problem of whether or not you get to decide whether a computer you own, the computer in your car, Uh, you get to decide what it's doing. Now, there's two problems with this solution. The first one, of course, is that it won't work. Um, As the copyright wars have shown us, firmware locks aren't very effective against determined attackers who are sitting in front of them. Um, People who want to sow mayhem with their custom firmware are going to be able to. And what's more, this is just not a good security approach. If vehicular security models depend on all other vehicles being well-behaved and uh, the unexpected never arising, we are all dead meat. Self-driving cars need to be conservative in in, in their approach to their own conduct, and they need to be liberal in their expectation of other people's conduct. It's the advice you got on day one of driver's ed, and it's good advice whether a human being is behind the wheel or a computer is. But the second reason is, is a more kind of philosophical and social one. Because the, when you start to say, well, there are classes of devices that everyday people own that some remote authority should be able to override their decisions on, it invites some pretty ugly parallels. Do you remember the term information superhighway? If we can justify securing the physical roads by demanding that the state or some state-like entity gets to certify the firmware of the devices that cruise on its lanes, how do we articulate a policy on explaining why the devices on our equally vital virtual highways? uh, with comparable, uh, with comparable firmware locks for PCs and phones and tablets and other devices, why those shouldn't be under state control. After all, we have a general purpose network, and that general purposeness means that MRIs, spaceships, air traffic control systems, and so on, all share the information superhighway with your Game Boy, your Arduino-linked fart machine, and, uh, the dodgy voyeur cams sold by spammers from the Pearl River Delta. And and think for a moment about um, avionics and power station automation. These are much trickier questions. If the FAA mandates a certain firmware for 747s, it's probably going to want those 747s designed so that it and it alone controls the signing keys for their bootloaders. And And just as the Nuclear Regulatory Commission will want the final say on the firmware running on reactor piles... Now this may be a problem for the same reason that modifying uh, that a ban on modifying car firmware will be a problem because it establishes the idea that the authorities uh, should be allowed to control the firmware on some device that that uh, belongs to you or some other private entity but it might it may be that airplanes and nukes are so different from all the other things that we own that 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 wouldn't happen i mean they're already subject to such. Uh, overweening regulation, you know, no knock warrants and, and surprise inspections, that it may be that adding another layer of regulatory control won't lead us to think, well, if you can control airplanes, why not get the computer on your desk? But there's a, there's a bigger problem with owner controls. What about people who uh, use computers but don't own them? This is not a group of people that the IT industry has had a lot of sympathy for on the whole. We have devoted an enormous amount of energy to stopping non-owning users from doing a bunch of crazy things like inadvertently breaking the computers that they're using, downloading menu bars, typing random shit they find on the internet into their terminals. Plugging malware infected USB sticks in, disabling firewalls, installing plugins, adding repositories, adding certificates to the machines of the browser's trust route, punching holes in the network perimeter by accident, or accidentally cross connecting the networks that are required to remain separate, like the sensitive internal network and the untrusted public network. And to stop users from deliberately doing bad things, like installing key loggers uh, and spyware that they use to attack future users or misappropriating secrets that are on the network, or snooping on network traffic, or deliberately breaking their machines, or deliberately punching holes in the network's perimeter, or deliberately disabling the firewall, or deliberately interconnecting those networks that are supposed to remain separate. There's a kind of symmetry here. DRM and its cousins are deployed by companies who believe that you can't and shouldn't be uh, able, uh, trusted to set policy on your own computer. IT systems are deployed by computer, uh, by computer owners who believe that computer users can't be trusted to set policies on the computers that they use. Now, I'm a former systems administrator and a former CIO, and I'm not going to pretend that users aren't a challenge every day for people who manage IT systems. But I think that there are good reasons to treat users as having rights to set policies on the computers that they don't own. I want to start with the easy one, the business case for this. When we demand freedom for owners, we do so for lots of reasons, but one important reason is that computer programmers just can't anticipate all the contingencies that their code might run up against. That when the computer says yes, owners still might need to say no, and when the computer says no, owners still might need to say yes. The idea that owners might possess situational awareness that just can't be perfectly captured in a series of nested if-then statements. Now, this is where communism and libertarianism converge. This guy, Hayek, thought that expertise was a diffuse thing and that you were more likely to find the situational awareness good for, uh, for good decision-making very close to the decision itself. Devolution gives you better results than centralization. And then there's this guy. Who, thought that, uh, the, who, who believed in the legitimacy of workers' claims over their working environment, saying that, co- that the contribution of labor was just as important as the contribution of capital and demanding that workers be treated as the li- rightful owners of their workplace with the power to set policy over it. For totally opposite reasons, these two believed that the people at the coalface should be given as much power as possible. Um, now, the death of mainframes was attended by an awful lot of concerns over users and what they might do to their enterprises. In those days, users were even more constrained by their IT system than they are today. They could only see the screens that the mainframe let them see, and only undertake the mainframes that the mainframe let them uh, undertake the operations that the mainframe let them undertake. When the PC and VisiCalc and Lotus 1-2-3 appeared, employees actually risked getting fired by bringing those machines into the office or bringing home office data to run on them at home, because they had a computing need that couldn't be met by the constraints set by their firms and by the, its IT department, and because they didn't think that if they came to their IT department or their employers with their demands that they would be recognized as legitimate. After all, the standard response to something like that from a user is one or more of the following. Our regulatory compliance prohibits you doing the thing that will help you do your job better. If you do your job that way, we won't know if you've done it right. You only think you want to do your job that way. It's impossible to make a computer do what you want it to do. Corporate policy prohibits doing your job that way. Now, some or all of these may be true, although they often aren't. And even when they are true, they're the kind of truths that we give bright young geeks millions of dollars in venture capital to falsify, while middle-aged administrative assistants merely get written up by HR for trying to do the same thing. The um, the personal computer arrived into the enterprise by the back door, over the objections of the IT department, without the knowledge of management, at the risk of censure and termination, and it made the companies that fought it billions, trillions. The reason that giving workers more powerful, more flexible tools was good for firms is that people are generally smart, and they generally want to do their jobs, and because they know stuff that their bosses don't know. As an owner, you don't want the devices that you buy locked because you might want to do something that the designer didn't anticipate. And employees don't want the devices that they use all day locked because they might want to do something that the IT department didn't anticipate. This is the soul of Hayekism. We're smarter at the edge than we are in the middle, but it's something that the business world only pays lip service to, and uh, these ideas that came into the 1940s from Hayek and free markets. But when it comes to freedom within the companies that they run, most businesses operate in a paradigm that's a good 50 years older, mired in the ideology of this guy, Frederick Winslow Taylor, and his idea of scientific management. The idea that workers are just a particularly unreliable kind of machine whose movements and actions should be scripted and constrained by an all-knowing management consultant who would work with an equally wise uh, series of company bosses to determine the one true way that you should do your job. In other words, the ideology that let Toyota cream Detroit's big three automakers during the car wars in the 1980s. So letting enterprise users do stuff that they think will allow them to, get their, to make more money for their companies will sometimes make their companies more money. Also, scientific management is about as scientific as trepanation and Myers-Briggs tests. The business case for user rights is a good one, but I really just wanted to get it out of the way so that I could get down to the real meat here, the human rights case. Now, it may seem a little weird on its face to talk about human rights here, but uh, bear with me. Early this year, I saw a talk by this guy, Hugh Hare, the director of the Biomechanotronics group at the MIT Media Lab, basically the prosthesis lab. Now some of you have probably seen Hare do talks, there's some amazing ones on YouTube. Um, it's electrifying. Now, he starts out with a bunch of slides of all these cool prostheses that they've built in their labs. There's, you know, legs and feet and hands and arms. Uh, And then there's even this device that uses focused magnetism to suppress activity in the brains of people with severe, untreatable depression to amazing effect. And then he shows this slide of him climbing a mountain. And he's buff. He's clinging to the rock like a gecko. And, oh, yeah, he doesn't have any legs. He just has these cool mountain climbing prostheses. And he looks at the audience from where he's been standing and kind of pacing back and forth on the stage. And he says, oh, yeah, didn't I mention I don't have any legs? And he rolls up his pants legs to show off these amazing robotic gams. And he proceeds to run up and down the stage, leaping around like a mountain goat. Now, the first question when I saw him that anyone asked was, uh, how much did those legs cost? And he named a sum that would buy you a brownstone in central Manhattan or a terraced Victorian in Zone 1 London. And the second question that someone asked me was, who's going to be able to afford these things? And Hugh said, well, uh, everyone, if you're choosing between a 40-year mortgage on a house and having legs, you're going to choose legs, which is all by way of asking you to consider the possibility that there are going to be people, potentially a lot of people, who are going to be users of computers that they don't own, where those computers are going to be parts of their bodies. Now, I think that most of the tech world can understand why as you, as the owner of your cochlear implants, should be legally allowed to choose the firmware that runs on them. After all, when you own a device that is surgically implanted in your skull, it makes a lot of sense that you should have the freedom to change software vendors. Maybe the company that your implant has the very best signal processing algorithm right now, but what if a competitor patents a superior algorithm next year? Should you be doomed to having inferior hearing for the rest of your life or the life of the patent? This is a problem that can't be overcome merely by escrowing the code, the sort of thing that you might do if you wanted to be protected against the company going bankrupt, or by publishing the code, the sort of thing you might do if you wanted to be sure there were no shenanigans going on. This is a problem that can only be overcome by the unambiguous right to to change the software, even if the company that made your implants is a going concern and doesn't want you to. So that helps owners. But what about users? Now consider some of the following scenarios. Say you're a minor child and your deeply religious parents pay for your cochlear implants and they ask for the software that makes it impossible for you to hear blasphemy. Or you're broke and a commercial company wants to sell you ad-supported implants that listen in on your conversations and insert contextual ads that trigger discussions about the brands you love. Or your government is willing to install cochlear implants, but they'll archive everything you hear and review it without your knowledge or consent. That may sound far-fetched, but consider that just a few months ago, the Canadian government was forced to abandon plans to put hidden microphones throughout the nation's airports so they could listen in on every conversation going on and find the bad ones. Um, Will the Iranian government or the Chinese government take advantage of this if they get the chance? And speaking of Iran and China, Um, uh, uh, There are plenty of human rights activists who believe that bootlocking is the start of a human rights disaster in countries like them. It's no secret that there are plenty of uh, high-tech companies that have been happy to build these lawful interception backdoors into their equipment to allow for warrantless secret access to communications. These backdoors are now standard, so even if your country doesn't want the capability, it's still there. Now, in Greece, there wasn't any legal requirement for lawful intercept on their telecoms equipment. But during the 2004 and 5 Olympics bidding process, an unknown person or agency switched on the dormant capability and harvest an unknown quantity of private communications from the highest levels and then switched it off again. No one knows who, no one knows what they got, no one knows what they did with it, or if they do, they're not saying. Surveillance in the middle of the network is nowhere near as interesting as surveillance at the edge. If you can control the devices instead of the network, you can find out all kinds of juicy things. As the ghosts of Mr. Hayek and Marx will tell you, there's a lot of stuff going on at the coalface that never makes it back to the central office. And even so-called democratic governments know this. That's why the Bavarian government was illegally installing this Bundestrojaner, a state Trojan, on people's computers, gaining access to their files and keystrokes and much else besides. It is a safe bet that the totalitarian governments of the world will happily take advantage of boot locking and move the surveillance right into the box. You may not import a computer into Iran unless you limit its trust model so that it only boots up operating systems with the lawful intercept door, backdoors built right into them. Now, assume we get an owner controls model wherein the first person to use a machine gets to initialize the list of trusted keys and then lock it with a secret or another authorization token. All this means is that the state customs authority has to initialize every machine as it enters the country before it passes into users' hands. Now, maybe you'll be able to do something to override that trust model, but by design, the system will be heavily tamper-evident, meaning that a secret policeman or a garden-variety snitch will be able to tell at a glance whether you've modified your computer to lock the state out of it. And it's not just repressive states, of course. Remember that there are four major customers for sensorware, spyware, and lockware. There's repressive governments, large corporations, uh, schools, and helicopter parents. That is to say that the needs of paranoid parents, school systems, and enterprises converge with those of the governments of Syria and China. They don't share ideological ends, but they have awfully similar technological means to attain their individual ends. And we're very forgiving of institutions as they pursue those ends. You can do almost anything if you're doing it to protect shareholders or children. For example, you may remember that there was widespread indignation from all sides when it was revealed that some companies were requiring prospective employees to hand over their Facebook login credentials as a condition of employment. Now, these employers argued that they needed to review your list of friends and what you said when you were in your private uh, moments before determining whether you were suitable for working there. Facebook logins were fast becoming the workplace urine testing of the 21st century, a means of ensuring that your private life didn't have any unsavory secrets lurking in it, secrets that might compromise your working life. Now, the nation wasn't buying this. From Senate hearings to popular editorials, the country rose up against this practice. But no one seems to mind that employers routinely insert their own intermediate keys into their employees' devices, their phones, their tablets, and their computers. These allow them to spy on their internet traffic, even when it's secure with a little lock showing in the browser. Uh, It gives the employers access to any sensitive site you uh, visit on the job, from your union's message board, to your bank, to Gmail, to your HMO, or your doctor's private patient messaging area, to Facebook. There's a wide consensus that this is okay, because the laptop, phone, or tablet that your employer issues to you is not your property, they're company property. And yet, the reason that employers give us these mobile devices is because there's no longer any meaningful distinction between work and home. Corporate sociologists who study the way that we use our devices time and again find that employees are not capable of maintaining strict divisions between their work and personal accounts and devices. America is the land of the 55-hour work week, a country where very few professionals take any meaningful vacation, and when they do, they go abroad with their Blackberries. Even in traditional old pre-digital workplaces, we recognize the human rights of workers on company property. We didn't put cameras in the toilets to curtail employee theft by and large. If your spouse came by the office while you were on your lunch break and the two of you went into the parking lot so that she or he could tell you that the doctor says that the cancer is terminal, you'd be aghast and furious to know that that conversation had been recorded by a hidden camera and microphone. But if you use your company laptop to access Facebook on your lunch break, wherein your spouse conveys to you the fact that the cancer is terminal, you're supposed to be okay with your employer uh, knowing that because they've been running a man-in-the-middle attack on your personal life uh, and on the most intimate, intimate details thereof. But There are plenty of instances in which rich and powerful people, and not just corporate peons or children or prisoners will be users instead of owners of the devices around them. Every car rental agency would, be love, would love to be able to not just low-jack the cars they rent you. Remember, cars are computers you put your body into. They'd love to log all the places you've been uh, for marketing purposes and analytics. There's lots of money to be made in finagling the firmware on your rental car GPS to ensure that your routes always take you past certain billboards. But in general, the poorer and younger you are, the more likely you are to be a tenant farmer in some feudal lord's computational lands, the more likely that your legs will cease to walk if you get behind on payments, meaning that any thug who buys your debts from a payday lender can literally and legally threaten to take your legs or eyes or ears or arms or insulin or pacemaker away if you don't come up with the next payment. Now, before I discussed how an owner override would work, some combination of phys- physical access control, tamper evidence, designed to give users of computers, uh, owners of computers rather, the power to know and control what bootloader and operating system are running on them. Now, how would a user override work? I think effective user override would have to leave the underlying computer intact as a first design principle. Now, Here's a totally hypothetical model for this. This is the bit that, I'm telling, that I mentioned before. It's not a technological proposal. It's an example. Um, imagine that there's a bootloader that can reliably and accurately report on the kernels and operating systems it finds on the drive. This is the prerequisite for any of these scenarios, the one in which the state of the corporation gets to control how owners use their devices, the one in which owners get to use their devices, and the one in which I'm about to describe in which users get to control their devices. Now, give this hypothetical bootloader the power to suspend any running operating system to disk, encrypting all of its threads and files so that the person sitting at the console can no longer access them. So you walk into an internet cafe or some other context in which you're using a device that you don't own, and you park the operating system, and you now have the power to select the OS from another, uh, from a, a thumb drive or from the network. Um, and now imagine that the internet cafe has a, uh, a, a, some kind of lawful interception backdoor for the police. Now, you, you're an attorney, you're a doctor, you're a corporate executive, or just a human being who doesn't like the idea of your private stuff being available to anyone who's friends with a dirty cop. So you do this three-finger salute with your F keys to drop into this minimal bootloader shell, one that invites you to give the net address of some alternative OS or insert your thumb drive. The cafe owner's operating system is parked. You can't see it anymore. But the bootloader can assure you that it's dormant and not spying on you as your OS fires up. And when your OS is done, all of its working files are trashed and the bootloader confirms it, not just because this keeps the computer's owner from spying on you, but because it stops you from attacking the user's owner or other users that come by. There will be a technological means of subverting this, but there's a world of difference between starting from the design spec that aims to protect users from owners and vice versa, than one that says that users must always be vulnerable to the owner's wishes. Fundamentally, this amounts to the difference between freedom and openness, between what we've called free software and open source for all these years. For a long time, these have seemed like distinctions without a difference. I think that we are slowly acquiring the meaningful difference between them. Now, human rights and property rights often come into conflict with, uh, conflict with one another. For example, landlords aren't allowed to enter your house without adequate notice, even if you rent it from them. Uh, in many places, your hotel can't throw you out if you're paying the rate, even if you overstay your reservation. Um, the repo man can't come and take your car away without uh, uh, going through some procedure and giving you the opportunity to rebut uh, an accusation of being delinquent in your payments. And when these, when these processes are streamlined to make them easier for the property owners, we often see human rights abuses, like when robo-signers working for eviction mills use fraudulent declarations to evict homeowners who are caught up on their mortgages, or even people who don't have mortgages. The potential for abuse in a world made of computers is much greater. Imagine um, your car driving itself into the repo yard, or your high-rise apartment building switching off its elevators and climate systems, stranding thousands of people, until, a, distributed li- until a, a, a disputed license payment is made. Now, this already actually happened once before. Back in 2006, there was a 314-car robotic parking model RPS 1000 garage in Hoboken, New Jersey, um, that took all the cars in its guts hostage. It locked down the software until the owners of the garage paid a licensing bill that they disputed. They paid it even though they maintained that they didn't owe it, because what the hell else were they gonna do? There were 300 cars trapped in the belly of this machine. What will you do when your dispute with a vendor means that you go blind or deaf or lose the ability to walk or become suicidally depressed? The negotiating leverage that accrues to owners over users is total and terrifying. Users will be strongly incentivized to settle quickly rather than face the dreadful penalties that could be visited on them in the event of a dispute. And when the owner of the device is the state or a state-sized corporate actor, the potential for human abuse rights skyrockets. This is not to say that um, owner override is an unmitigated evil. Think for a minute of these smart meters that can override your thermostat at peak levels. Without the ability to tell your house to change its HVAC at the right moment, we won't be able to switch off coal and other dirty power sources that are the sorts of things that we can vary and ramp up at peak demand. But these things work best if the users, the homeowners who allow the the power company to install them in their homes, can't override them. But what happens when griefers or crooks or a government trying to quell a popular rebellion use this to turn off the heat during a hundred-year storm or crank the heat up to maximum during a heat wave? The HVAC in your house can hold the power of life and death over you. Do we really want a design to allow remote parties to set policy on it that you can't override? The question is, once we create a design norm of devices that users can't override, how far will that creep? Especially risky would be the use of owner override to offer payday loan-style services to vulnerable people. If you can't afford artificial eyes for your kids, we'll subsidize them, only if you let us redirect their focus to sponsored toys and sugar snacks at the store. Whoops, I'm a little out of, uh, out of sequence here. I don't normally use slides. There we go. Um, but for closing on, all, on owner override probably means that there's going to be poor people who will not be offered some technology at all. If I can low jack your legs, I can lease them to you with the confidence of my power to repo them if you default on payments. If I can't, I may not lease you legs at all unless you're already rich. But if, you, but if your legs can decide to walk to the repo depot without your consent, you will be totally screwed the day that some mugger or rapist or griefer or the secret police figure out how to hijack that facility It gets even more complicated, of course, because you're the user of many systems in the most transitory way, subway turnstiles, elevators, the blood pressure cuff at your doctor's office, a public bus or an airplane. It's going to be hard to figure out how to create a user override that isn't nonsensical, although we might start by saying users are someone who are the sole user of a device for a certain amount of time. As I said at the start of this talk, this is not a problem I know how to solve, Unlike the coming war on general-purpose computing, the civil war over them seems to present a series of conundra without a single clean line of solutions, which is why I'm talking to this audience about them. These problems are a way off, but we're supposed to be thinking in the long term here. And of course, they'll only arise if we win the war on computers first. But come Victory Day, when we start planning the Constitutional Congress for the new world, where regulating computers is acknowledged as the wrong way to solve problems, Let's not paper over the division between human rights and property rights. This is the sort of division that, while it festers, puts the most vulnerable people in our society in harm's way. Agreeing to disagree on this one is not good enough. We need to start thinking now about the principles that will apply when the day comes, because if we don't start now, it may be too late. Thank you.
0: sort of an analog question. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've been in Britain how long?
1: Off and on since 2003.
0: Uh, They've been doing more surveillance cameras than almost anybody. And there must be some serious parallels between what's been going on, what's playing out there, versus some of these human property privacy issues you're raising in terms of computers. What have you got so far from that? What have they got from that?
1: Well, you know, I think one of the big problems with the UK is the conflation of solving crimes and preventing crimes. It seems like there's a lot of times where cameras solve crimes, but they often seem to serve as a, as a substitute for, for um, the kind of uh, boots on the street that might prevent crimes. So, for example, I know someone who was um, murdered near his house. He came up out of the tube station. There used to be a human guard there, and that human guard had been replaced by a camera. And that camera did capture the three kids who followed him out of the tube and stabbed him to death and took his phone, and they were later captured on the basis of it. But he's still dead right? Um, I think that, that cameras aren't the same thing as people. And moreover, I think that cameras kind of change our behavior in, in lots of ways that um, we're still making sense of. And they, they lead us to weird and nonsensical conclusions. I mean, Britain has this love-hate relationship with cameras. They will arrest you for taking out your camera, but they will take your picture over and over again. I, 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 the weirdest of these is the daycare that we take my daughter to every day. Um, we walk... 10 minutes to uh, to the to the daycare, and you know Britain has like 14 CCTVs per red blood cell now, which means that we're photographed like a million times on the way to the daycare, and when you get to the daycare, there's a CCTV over the door, and beneath it is a sign that says in the interest of safety, please don't turn on your camera in the daycare, um, which is to say we can take lots of pictures of you, but you can't take any pictures of us. I, was, I reprised my role this year as the uh, atheist Jewish Santa Claus of the East End daycare and um, we weren't allowed to take any pictures of any of, the, of, of me because there might be a kid in it. And once you take a picture of a kid, I don't know what you'll do with it, but somehow it's linked to pedophilia. I, I, I've never understood it
0: myself. Whoa. Which <laughs> somehow erases all uh, argument for some. So it's been going on that long in Britain. Are the, is the populace sort of moving in some direction in relation to all that? Is the government moving in some relation to all of that? Or is it they put up all the cameras and that's that? I think the frog has been boiled.
1: I mean, nobody can really articulate what it's supposed to do. And and it's one of these things, there's a whole class of, you know, old lady who swallowed a fly problems where having swallowed the fly, you need to swallow a spider and a bird and so on, where, you know, if the CCTVs aren't solving the problem, the problem must be that there aren't enough CCTVs. Um, and you can, like, like any problem can be solved by just adding more CCTVs, and they oftentimes, you know, one of the problems with these things is that they, well, there are are a suite of them. One is that, um, weirdos and bad guys might be looking out of them, right, so that, that puts you at risk. One is that they, that when you have a lot of them, it's very hard to keep them all working, so the important, you've, you've got this sort of maintenance rota that doesn't distinguish between CCTVs that are in places where, you know, the research shows you that you can prevent crime, like parking garages, which is places where people are often on their own and where it's, you know, quite easy to pull off a crime and get away clean, um, and the CCTV that's just sort of reflexively put somewhere because CCTVs uh, add magic security dust to any public location. And, and as a result, you, you end up with a kind of, because there's no theory behind it. There's no one's got an articulatable theory about safety that relates to CCTVs, except CCTVs make us safer. Um, there's no way to deploy the system rationally. It's, it's just, it's just doctrinaire.
0: Question from Paul Clip. Uh, it's interesting. He's got two questions. Uh, only the first one is here. Uh, given the move to cloud computing, don't we all become users?
1: That's certainly true. Although, you know, you could imagine, like, some combination of, of cryptography and virtual machines making you the um, owner of a, or owner in some meaningful sense of a, of a computer that, that you're not physically present at. But yeah, I mean, there, there are certainly lots and lots of, of computers that we use every day that we don't own.
0: And, well, hmm, one of the things I'm getting from, all right, there's a really good question here. Yeah. Um, Basically, uh, the question relates to this has been going on for a while, mm-hmm. what you're talking about, and what you're saying is it's going to keep going on for a while. Mm-hmm. So the 50 years, plus or minus, of dealing with computers that we're in, that are in us, that we live in, that blah, 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 uh, have given us a set of trends that you are responding to and that as a science fiction writer, you're then thinking where those trends go and what makes them flip into something else and so on. What is your overall sense of the last 50 years leading to the next period of time?
1: Well, so I think for the last, maybe for the last 20 years anyways, the kind of the period of the DRM wars, okay. there's been this sense that property owners' uh, rights are being taken away. There's this fight between uh, like a kind of notional property and real property that, that because everything that you own contains something licensed that you uh, your that kind of clean ownership that's in some ways illusory anyways but that clean kind of blackwellian ownership blackstonian ownership where you have the you know absolute tyranny over your device is being eroded that that, that you know that that your your real property rights in your TV or your phone or your computer uh, are being taken away because they are being governed by EULAs that kind of you, you you agree to just by sort of by standing here and shouting no 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 I don't agree you agree that I'm allowed to come over to your house and clean out your fridge and wear your underwear and make some long distance calls, you know, um, so I think that that, that has been a, a, a building consensus right that there's a lot of people who really agree with that and and I, I agree with it uh, that and that this is improper that um, that it's that whatever it is that we use to kind of regulate information it shouldn't be at the expense of the right to you know take a picture of your shoes even though they embody a design patent owned by someone or uh, take a picture of your t-shirt even though it has some copyrighted mark on it or you know record your kid dancing in your kitchen and put put the adorable toddler on YouTube even though there's some faint strains of prints playing in the background right these these things <laughs> come up and um, uh, they are are important issues, and I think that, by and large, we go, yeah, no, that's right, we we should, you own it, you you bought it, you own it, it's yours, whatever it is we do to regulate information, let's not do it at the expense of of owning stuff. But there's also this increased consensus, I think, that, like, your company's IT department has the right to tell you what you do with your computers, and if you don't like it, you should work at a different company. Um, And I think that that's... That's our reflexive answer that's not a very good answer. You know, I wrote a column about the fact that um, we weren't pissed off when, when Facebook logins were captured by employers, uh, when users used um, their company computers to access Facebook, even on their lunch breaks or whatever. Uh, but we were pissed off when, when prospective employees were required to give their credentials. So the idea was like... And the, the email that I got from this universally said, you're an idiot. Right? IT departments um, uh, have the responsibility and duty, first of all, to spy on everything their users do, because how else would you stop company secrets from leaking out, or how else would you have HIPAA compliance, or how else would you have some other compliance regime uh, in the enterprise? And then they also said, you're an idiot because it's your, it's your boss's computer. Why are you doing something personal on it? It's, it's, you know, if you want to do something personal, use your own computer. But, you know, we're not, we're not really good at maintaining clean divisions between user computers and owner computers. And, and moreover, as I said in the talk, you know, there's lots of times where you're on your employer's uh, property, where your employer's dominion over your interrelationships with other people and your kind of, your, your person is not obso- a- a- absolute. So why should it be absolute? Just because there's a computer in the middle of it. Why is it that Facebook credentials are beyond the pale for prospective employees, but kind of, you know, just 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 a thing that you ha- you should sort of suck it up, and if you don't like it, use someone else's computer once you take the job?
0: I get the sense you're saying that this. The, you're talking about property rights and human rights, and the property rights seems to be an endless condition of negotiation and battle and the civil war and so on, whereas the human rights, I get the sense you're saying is a little more absolute, and that doesn't change so much over time.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, will, well... Will
0: human rights, laws then be able to sort of clarify the issues?
1: No, I, I, actually I don't think human rights um, are, are unchangeable over time because I think that there are human rights questions that we've never had to answer, like control over your sensorium or um, universal surveillance or even negotiating the difference between... Um, you know, like we've always had you know, a certain abhorrence for people who go and read your private diary in order to incriminate you. That happened to me once, But, but horrible. But, but I mean, what about your life logger? What about your Fitbit? What about, you know, there's, there's a kind of depth of information captured there that on the one hand seems um, kind of uh, like impersonal, right? And yes, there you go. Uh, you know, like, like your pulse at any given time, you know, why, why should that be private? But at the same time, could be quite damning taken as a whole. I kind of feel like these disclosures, they're a bit like um, uh, involuntary dis- disclosures, or even voluntary ones sometimes, are a bit like smoking, right? Taking a puff of a cigarette won't give you cancer, but if enough people take enough puffs of cigarettes, some of them will get cancer. And being disclosing once won't put you in harm's way, probably. But enough disclosures over a wide enough population is going to create some really weird pathological outcomes. And when those disclosures are compelled because they come out of the devices, that um, is even more uh, potentially harmful.
0: So is part of this driven by just the pace of change? Because norms emerge, laws emerge, regulations that people feel okay about emerge. But if you've got Moore's Law chugging along behind all of this and just making it a whole new engineering and use world every few years, does that mean that norms never get to catch up and there's always going to be civil war for the foreseeable future?
1: Well, I mean, I, I don't think that it's, that it's merely future shock or, you know, a, a acceleration shock. I think that, like, mm-hmm. you know, people, I sometimes hear people say privacy is dead, but it seems to me that privacy is dead is not a description of the world as it is, but rather a slogan, Right, um, I need more money. Privacy is dead. Right? Uh, not, it's 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 it seems like whenever I hear someone declaring privacy dead, that person has an interest in privacy being dead, um, uh, and and you know they are they're, they're it's it's not a neutral it's not a neutral observation, um, and so you know Larry Lessig talks about these four mm-hmm. regulatory forces: code, law, technology, and norms, and. Mm-hmm. I think that when new technology comes along, there are lots of norms, differing norms that emerge, but the ones that emerge victorious are often those that um, uh, are prompted by people or or supported by people or support the interests of people who already have lots of power. So, you know, for example, um, I can't figure out how to um, rent you music uh, and then rent it to you again later unless I can control your computer. Therefore controlling your computer is bad, when, you know, the, another answer to that might be, why is renting your computer an absolute, why is renting music to me an absolute right? I mean, if you can't figure out how to rent computer music to me without doing something so obviously wrong, then you should get another, another line of work, right? Um, it seems to me that, 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 like, there's nothing a priori, like, if you were a Martian watching the Earth through a telescope, there'd be nothing about one or the other that would tell you that that seems like, on its face, to be a more reasonable claim, right? You know, uh, uh, renting music, not renting music. There's there's no there's no absolute kind of necessity that music be rentable.
0: Question from uh, John Foster, not a question. He says, "Thank you for validating my vintage computer fetish. <laughs> Old hardware makes it all future proof." Yeah,
1: well, not. I mean, only if. You don't have a modern car only if you don't get fitted with a pacemaker. Only if you don't walk past CCTV's. Only if I mean there are lots of computers that you will end up using that aren't visibly computers, right? So and, nothing
0: you know. is future-proof.
1: Yeah, well I don't. I mean I think being a hermit maybe, but but you know that that you know there's that the, this is a very you know versatile quote. Just because you're not interested in technology doesn't mean technology isn't interested in you, you know. <laughs> little, little warmed-over Trotsky there.
0: <laughs> Red diaper, right? Yeah. Yeah. My, my parents, parents are that. in the audience <laughs> there, nodding proudly. Um, a little fanboy question. You're about to uh, finish a book with Charles Strauss? No,
1: no, no, no. It's been long Start. finished. It's long finished. Yeah, yeah, no. It's Say coming something out in it. September. Yeah,
0: sell, us, sell us this well, book.
1: You may have read the first two-thirds of it. We, the first story we ever wrote together was called Jury Service, and it's a comic novel set in a world in which all of the um, technophiles have ascended to the singularity. They're all, they're, they've all abandoned their bodies and, and left behind uh, all of the Luddites, the... Um, all of the people who are uh, deeply religious and reject technology, and so on. So the, the, it's, a, it's the inverse of the left-behind novels in which all of the pious people <laughs> go to heaven. And this one, all of the, the refuseniks are left behind, and all of the, all of the kind of um, highly secular technophiles go to the cloud. and it's, it's, um, And the cloud... Sends spam to the earth it, it has <laughs> it has ideas uh, in fact it 's dis- it 's disassembled the whole solar system except for the Earth because it has a sentimental attachment to it and it 's formed this giant dyson sphere and there 's this just this one lighthouse beam tracking the Earth as the Earth goes around the sun, and the rest of the sun's radiant energy is being absorbed by the bones of all the planets that are now, you know, grinding Computronium, running simulations of nerds. And, and the nerds send, um, send spam to the Earth with, like, cool ideas they've had for what meat people can do. And, um, and there's, there's a jury that meets periodically to figure out which of these technologies are usable. So um, the, the protagonist of the story is a bit like... Um, Rincewin and the Terry Pratchett novels, kind of comic hero, uh, is is summoned to Libya to attend a people's technology court to determine whether or not this technology is usable. So we wrote that, then we wrote a a sequel called Appeals Court, so two novellas. So Tor Books uh, really liked it and said, write a third. We'd always talked about writing a third, so we wrote a third, which is called um, Parole Board. And then we rewrote all three to make them all fit together as a single unitary story, and that's, that's called Rapture of the Nerds. And that's coming out in September. And uh, we'll be touring with it. Just just a little baby tour. Charlie's going to be over for um, uh, the World Science Fiction Convention in Chicago. And I'm going to be at Burning Man. And we're going to rendezvous. I think we start in New York. And we're going to like New York, Lexington, and Boston. And then Rochester. There's a thing at RIT. And then we're going home. So yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the next book.
0: Okay, so one of the things you're great at, and it keeps me reading your books, is you, uh, you You make this wonder-seeming thing come to happen. The gold farmers get together and they organize, whatever it may be. And here you've got the rapture of the nerds in their Dyson sphere, making all this cool stuff happen. Uh, so they've attained their rapture, but the world doesn't stop. Uh, what happens then?
1: Well, I mean, it's a, it's a series of, of comic stories that are in part about the... Um, arrogance of technological determinism, of, of telling people, well, this is, this is just going to happen. Get used to it. Here's the technology. Change thing. So in some, in some sense, a kind of self-critique, because we're as guilty of that as anyone else. And it's also, you know, in, the thir- in the third act, it's really a book about how um, uh, the fact that we can all ascend and, and do things in computers that are impossible in the real world without the constraints of the real world doesn't mean that they'll be very nice. Um, and in particular, it doesn't mean that they'll, that they'll be very um, aesthetically pleasing. Uh, so the, the third act is really about um, life without constraint inside a, a, a simulated universe in which everything kind of looks like um, GeoCities page. And, uh, and there's a certain, that, that, is, that is not necessarily a prediction as much as an observation of the world that we inhabit today, you know, and, and it's it's. it's so we, we open that third act with um, someone pounding at the door, and the person who lives at the house says, who is it? And uh, the, the voice says, it's the singularity, and the, the person says, we don't want any, and the, the voice at the door pounds some more and says, um, everything is different now, <laughs> so I go away, I don't want any, and, and so it's a, it's a bit of this kind of idea that, that, there, that there may be legitimate reasons not to want any.
0: So you favor a certain um, variety going forward, it sounds like.
1: Well, I think that, you know, so I, had, I, I was hanging out with Dan Gilmore the other day, the uh, mm. journalist. And he, he talked about this thing he used to do where he maintained a list of ten things that he believed were true. And the first one is, like, uh, uh, Microsoft is a, is a uh, dirty monopolist that needs super, adult supervision. And every six months he would... Uh, call up people who totally disagreed with him about the 10 things that he thought were true and get them to tell them their best arguments to figure out whether or not he still thought that they were true uh, as a means of kind of sharpening uh, his belief and understanding whether or not he was taking things for granted. As he said, you know, if you believe something to be absolutely true in an era of rapid technological change and you never revisit that belief, the one thing you can be sure of is that you'll be wrong eventually. And so. I kind of feel like we need to investigate the possibility that we're not right, and that's one of the things that happens in this book. Plus, it was really fun. It was really, really fun mm-hmm. to do this. I, I um, did a, a, a joint talk. I don't know if it was ever put online with a guy named Peter Biddle, who's a really good guy. Who now works for Intel, but he designed Palladium. He designed trusted computing for Microsoft, and he's totally on the other side of a lot of these issues for me uh, than from me. And we gave we gave a talk where we reversed positions. Right. where he gave the position against it and I gave the position for it. And that was really uh, good fun, trying to come up with the best arguments, the arguments that I, that I always hoped no one would ever bust out when I was arguing about it because I couldn't think of the good ones. So,
0: um, Arguing with yourself, what have you changed your mind about lately?
1: What have I changed my mind about lately? Uh, Oof. Well, I mean, TPMs. I've, I've been really thinking a lot lately. Mm-hmm. You know, I, as, I, as I contemplate sensor density uh, in the devices that I own, I get, I'm getting increasingly worried that I need a means of verifying what's running on them. Um, I, I, you know, and, and lots of things are making me paranoid about that. Um, things like the Bundestrojaner, mm-hmm. the, the fact that um, it seems like there's a migration path from what we call like advanced persistent threats. They're the kinds of things that governments do into automated attacks, mm-hmm. um, where it's, not, it's nothing personal. It's just a thing that you can kind of execute against a population of 10 million people until you find the person who's vulnerable. I just saw a talk at DEF CON Kids, actually, uh, by um, uh, Moxie Marlinspike and a couple of friends over vulnerabilities in the near-field communication sensors in Android phones. And he took a piece of what looked like paper, and he brushed it against a phone. And thereafter, the phone belonged to him. Um, and he said, well, there's some limitations. You need to get the paper very close to the phone, and the phone needs to be switched on when it's running. <laughs> but I'm like, what if this was, what if this was confetti on uh, as they dropped the ball on New Year's Eve and everyone had their camera phone out? Would that work? And he was like, yeah, that'd probably work. Because thereafter, you own the phone over Bluetooth or over the public internet. You don't have to be four inches away to control the phone. You just need to be four inches away to put the phone in a state where you can control it. And I kind of feel like knowing what's going on in my computer is becoming increasingly important. I, I increasingly find myself putting Post-it notes over my webcam, um, you know, being a little worried. Uh, and I didn't used to worry much about that.
0: There's paranoia <clears throat> pay? Is, <clears throat> are, so there, there's paranoia is a sport. Right, but, it's you know, true. Lots of people enjoy I'm going to be totally secret, and it's, it's hard, yeah. and it's interesting, and so on. Um.
1: It is. Yeah, it's a fun game, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a great mind game to play.
0: Is it worth it?
1: Well, so I think that... It's, so the paranoia here is not the fear mm-hmm. that someone is out to get me. I don't flatter myself that anyone's particularly out to get me. The fear is that some vast automated attack against a range of 10 million IP addresses might catch me in it and that that might compromise me either in small ways or in large ways and that that compromise could come now or further down the line. In the same did way you just
0: shrug and reboot? No, what's the problem?
1: Well, so uh, you remember um, we all thought that Usenet was a book written on water and uh, we, we, we wrote things on Usenet <laughs> that we didn't intend to ever have repeated. Has
0: anybody died because of something they wrote on Usenet back when?
1: No, no, absolutely not. But, but, for example, I think people in, in the Middle East uh, have died because of things that were that's snooped fair. from their computer. That's fair. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's absolutely true. Um, and, and the thing about Usenet was there came a day when it turned out that there was an archive of Usenet, and News switched on, and then Google bought that archive. And Google seems to have, I don't know, shut that archive down. I can't seem to find it anymore. But for a while, you could find kind of, you know, high-flying dot-com CEOs Five years earlier, talking about being in the K-hole at Woodstock, and you know this was not the kind of thing you wanted uh, on you know the eve of your IPO, and um, it was it was it was a surprise. nobody died. Come on, nobody died, but it was a big bang, right? <laughs> and I think that like we are starting to see, for example, the 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 first glimmering of what happens when facial recognition is applied to the corpus of all photos ever put on the internet. Uh, and we're not far away from every photo on the Internet being labeled automatically or some fraction of every photo on the Internet being labeled automatically. And, and, and then there being, you know, social graph analysis against that of people that you never wanted to disclose you knew. Um, and that might lead to people dying or losing their jobs or later being compromised in some way, small or large. Um, and I think that there's... That, so I don't worry particularly that someone will attack me. I worry that if something gets extracted from my computer, that later on it might be correlated with lots of other things and that I might come to regret it later. I think we're really bad at judging the net present value of a future option on a disclosure, right? We, we don't know what it's going to be worth in 20 years. This is why Facebook is such a problem because if the basis of Facebook is people can, can rationally measure the value of a, of a disclosure today against, uh, against the value they get from Facebook... and uh, and the total value of that disclosure over the life of of that disclosure living on Facebook, the empirical evidence is that they're really bad at that that valuation.
0: It's like some of what we're talking about here is the difference between uh, anticipatory problem-solving and retroactive problem-solving. And this is Jimmy Wales' parable of the steak knives. Yeah, sure. You know, where his programmers wanted to say, well, our users might do this bad thing, and here, we'll write this really nifty software that will prevent them from doing that. Uh-huh. And Jimmy uh-huh. said, wait a goddamn minute, see if there's actually a problem, and then solve that. Uh-huh. It's much easier to solve a problem you can see than a problem that you can imagine, sure. because the problems you can imagine are infinite.
1: Well, we already have lots of weird problems where people take over computers that mm-hmm. that, that they, the, of, of people who own them or use them. I mean, mm-hmm. Lower Merion School District was mm-hmm. the canary in the coal mine here, affluent suburb of, of Philly. Uh, they issue every student a, a MacBook. The students are required to use the MacBook to do their homework. They're required to bring it to school every day and home every night. And what the, what the uh, school district did was they installed covert software that allowed them to operate the webcam without turning on the little green light. And in theory, this was to stop thieves. But in practice, it turned out it did, they were just watching the kids lots of times. And the way that they discovered this is there was a kid who'd had a long-running dispute with his principal. He was a discipline case. Principal called him in and says, I got you now, Sonny. You've been taking drugs. <laughs> Hands him a photo of the kid, the night <laughs> before taking pills in his room. And the kid says, first of all, that's a Mike and Ike's candy. And second of all, how'd you get a picture of me in my bedroom? And it turns out that they'd taken thousands of pictures of this kid at home and at school, naked and dressed, with his parents, on his own. And you know that's that's an inkling of what can come because they it's were It's terrible. Stills. Then what
0: happened? Was it corrected or uh, it, it goes on to this day?
1: Well, they were sued, right? They were sued. They lost. Mm-hmm. And they got into trouble.
0: That's and what, other schools that not as do far that as, then?
1: well. No, in fact, I was just at um, Defcon Kids, and I gave mm-hmm. a talk, and I and, and I gave a talk about. School networks and school computers, and the control they exert over their kids. And a kid put his hand up and he said, Oh, my computer does way more than this kind of network censors, censorship and surveillance stuff. My computer. Every 15 minutes, puts up a dialogue, reminding me that they can watch me and see me and see everything I do, and 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 so they're just not keeping it a secret anymore. Little right They've paranoia nag software. That, by, are yeah, you being
0: fearful enough? <laughs>
1: by by entering, by entering this space, you agree that you will be recorded, right? I, mm-hmm. You've seen those signs. In fact, I just landed at some airport somewhere that said, and like on the in the customs queue, we are video recording today. Um, if you object to being recorded, please don't enter this area. But it was the customs queue, right? Um, you are being video recorded through your school computer. If you object to being recorded, drop out of school. I don't know. Be a, be a truant.
0: Well, there's a guy here in town who'll give you money to drop out of school. Um, oh, man Peter, after my own heart. You know, Peter Thiel gives serious money to people who drop out of school. Um, Burning Man. So you went to Burning Man last year, I gather, and you're going to skip the science fiction convention this year to go to Burning Man again. What's that about?
1: Yeah, I'm skipping the World Science Fiction Convention this year for the first time. It's the second World Con I've missed in about 18 years, 19 years.
0: Who here is going to Burning Man? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Who here is going to be in my camp at Burning Man? I think some of my camp mates are here.
0: Hi, guys. What's your camp?
1: Uh, it's, we're, I, I'm, I'm camping with the Liminal Labs, uh, who are these awesome folks I know from when I lived in San Francisco and when in the heyday of the well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, they have th- this amazingly organized camp that we camped in last year for the first time. Uh, it was my first time at Burning Man. And I'd always assume that Burning Man would be uh, two things. It would be very austere because who the hell can be bothered to bring stuff out to the desert? <laughs> and, and it turns out that that's totally wrong, that it's yeah. incredibly lavish, that everyone takes it as a challenge. Let's see what kind of crazy stunt I can pull off in the desert. And I also thought it would be very doctrinaire. I thought that it would, all, it would always be about the... Um, that the, you know these ten principles, and that everywhere you went there'd be people quoting the ten principles like Mao's the Red Book at you. And in fact, although the ten principles are s- clearly central to what you do at Burning Man, and anytime anyone quotes them, they do so with an ironic eye roll, knowing how weird and, and ridiculous it is to be quoting these ten principles. Can
0: you state some of the ten principles? Um, indoctrinate you enough? To gosh, uh, the only one I remember is no dogs.
1: I, oh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Participate, don't spectate. I probably can't get the word. No spectators. Right. Yeah, right, leave right. no trace. What are
0: some other, yeah, leave no trace. What else? Immediacy.
1: Gift economy. What? Immediacy. Immediacy. Radical um, yeah. self reliance. Um, remember the 10 rules. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So and, and so it was. It was so transformative and amazing that I'm going back this year and skipping the WorldCon. And then for the next like five years, it looks like the WorldCon won't overlap WorldCon, so I won't have to uh, won't overlap Burning Man, so I won't have to choose. So I'll get to do both. So
0: gift economy, a, you know, a red diaper baby comes along, and here's fifty thousand people doing no money, and they're doing a gift economy. What does that look like?
1: Um, I guess the thing that I had a hard time wrapping my head around was the difference between gifts and barter. And I think everyone has that. When you talk about gift economies to people who've never been they say, well, what do you give people and what do they give you in exchange? And this seriously misunderstands the nature of a gift economy. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because it's infected the way I think about child rearing. So one of the things that I often get from my daughter is a kind of horse trading. She's how old? She's four and a half, Um, you know. And and it probably comes from us because I'm sure we end up doing it because everybody ends up doing it. If I give you an apple, will you put your shoes on so we can go to daycare? Um, (laughs) But that... That always, as you know, every bad habit you have comes back out of your kid's mouth. So I'll put on my shoes if you'll give me an apple. And the thing that I keep trying to come back to with her is uh, I will give you an apple because I'm your father and I love you and we live in a family together and you get apples. Um, You will put your shoes on because we're in a family and your job is to put your shoes on. These two acts happen nearly simultaneous, but they are not causal, right? Um, And it's. uh, it's a, a, a difficult, it's, it's a difficult distinction to make, but it is a distinction with a difference, right? I mean, you, you know, uh, uh, this is this whole notion of, of pocket money as something, as something that's not related to chores. Chores are chores. You do the chores because you're part of the family. We all do what we can. You get your pocket money because you're part of the family. We all do what we can. If, I, if, if people stopped buying my books and my wife was supporting me, I wouldn't ask her for a uh, permission to use the family checking account, because I'm part of the family unit, and we use the checking account together. Um, by the same token... How do you stay married?
0: One checking account? Oh, yes. And oh, indeed. well.
1: And, and by the same token, my daughter, when she's old enough, will get her pocket money, because she gets pocket money, and she'll do chores because she does chores. And I, and I hope that there'll be some way that we can keep those things separate, although it's going to be really hard not... not you know, they changed my mic. There's something as, you know, Sod's law here. My, the technology went wrong and they changed my mic and now I keep knocking this one off after right. having this other one taped on. So, so how old
0: does your daughter need to be before you take her to Burning Man?
1: I think that's more a question about us than her. Uh, it's, it's really a question about the extent to which
0: would you take her now if you lived in California? Which you might, I gather.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's possible someday we might end up living in California. We certainly talk about it a lot. We've, we've li- I, I've lived here before, and for a long time, my wife and I lived here for 14 months when, when I had the Fulbright at USC, and she was working for the BBC. And certainly it's something we little think about. Little Brothers
0: set here in San Yeah, Little sister. Brother,
1: and the sequel, Homeland, which is coming out next February, both set in San Francisco. Um, Say a little
0: about the sequel, then.
1: So mm-hmm. Homeland is the sequel, and it's it's set a couple of years after Little Brother, mm-hmm. and um, it's, it's set in a world in which he has, uh, uh, the, the young man who's the protagonist has... Um,
0: Remind us what the protagonist does.
1: He, and uh, Little Brother, it's, it's about kids who are out playing a video game or an alternate reality game in San Francisco one day when someone blows up the Bay Bridge. And um, the city goes into lockdown and the DHS is here and no one can figure out what's happened. And um, someone arrests them and uh, because they're weird and suspicious. Why are these school kids walking around? What's gone on? And instead of explaining what's gone on, they say, I'd like to see a lawyer. And that turns out to be the wrong answer to give in a condition of emergency for some, val- for some value of wrong answer, for, for what certain people seem to think you should do in the case of an emergency. And as a result, they end up being treated very badly. And this is the object lesson they need to, to tell them that, they, that, that what they must do is declare war on the Department of Homeland Security and restore the Bill of Rights to San Francisco. Um, and so that's what the rest of the book is about. The this sequ- is
0: a young adult book. Bernard. It's a young adult <laughs> novel.
1: Uh, it's, and the sequel to it is a book about... Um, uh, 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 what happens when the emergency is not a visible one, but a kind of frog-boiling one? When, when hmm. uh, some combination of economic uh, collapse and austerity um, and uh, and and you know the slow, monotonic changes, instead of this fast kind of shock doctrine change, hmm. ends up in this with it getting to almost the same place and. So it opens with, with the young protagonist having been unemployed and dropped out of university because he couldn't afford... His, his father's lost his job at Berkeley after, after contractions in the staffing there. He no longer gets free tuition. Tuition's going up. And he, up tuition's right? going up. He can no longer afford it. He's especially conscious of the fact that his student debt will follow him onto his social security. And, and he walks away, and, and he's trying to find a job, and he's pounding the pavement. He can't find a job. His parents can't find a job. Everything's contracting. He's, he's, he's hanging out at the hack space. He's hanging out at Noisebridge. And he manages to... Uh, thank you, yeah. And he manages to scrimp and save and, and go to Burning Man, where he... Uh, <laughs> which incidentally makes my trip to Burning Man tax-deductible. Uh, <laughs> and um, he... Uh, He finds a job. He meets some people, including someone who knows some people who know a a muckraking independent candidate for the California State Senate who's looking for a webmaster, and he walks into a job. But he walks into a job at the same time as he walks into holding a giant stash of government leaks. And so it's about his tension balancing the fact that he's got a straight day job working for this muckraking senator and all of these leaks. And without giving away the whole story, one of the leaks is that an organization a bit like Blackwater... Um, has uh, spun out and has become private debt collectors who are buying up subprime debt and, and um, securitizing it and collecting on it, and they have uh, fanned out um, uh, lobbyists to all 50 state houses in the country uh, with a proposal to pass state laws on debt collection that will allow them to attach the assets of parents of students who've gone back home after graduating and not finding a job. So it's basically another way of taking away your house. And uh, it's you know this is this is the secret he's sitting on at the same time as he's working for this muckraking, campaigner. So it's a there's there's lots of occupy style stuff. There's lots of UAVs and quadcopters. There's lots of WikiLeaks style (laughs) stuff. There's lots of there's lots of tour and forward secrecy. Jake Applebaum wrote one of the afterwards, and Aaron Swartz wrote another. There's lots of sort of twenty first century politics and and you know next generation political campaigning and the kind of stuff we did with SOPA and PIPA. Uh, in there and and some ideas that Aaron had. Aaron actually basically wrote a passage of it for me about what the future of political organizing and campaigning might look like in in a post-PIPA SOPA world. So it's it's a lot like little brother only the next thing.
0: And this is young adult too? And it's young adult too. (laughs) Us young adults are very grateful. Keep it up. Thank you. Thanks.